relationship resto. Um, we're looking at, at relationships, and, and we, we started talking last week about how um, doesn't matter the status of your relationship, there is relationships. Uh, sometimes uh, relationships like a house maybe just need uh, what they call a lipstick makeover, or just, you know, some fresh paint and move this over here, maybe get a new rug, and, and it's all pretty and good. Some of us uh, in certain relationships may need a, a gut job where everything needs ripped out and torn down to the studs and just start fresh. Um, but the amazing thing with God is that that is always an option. That is always an option. There is, there is nothing that is so, so broken, so beyond repair that, that it can't be restored we also began discussing how God created, created us, designed us to be in meaningful relationships with, with him and with each other. As designer, as creator, as builder of these relationships, he probably knows best how they work. He probably has a great idea for how we are to relate to him and we are to relate to each other. And fortunately, he gave us a set of instructions. He gave us kind of some guidelines on how both of those types of relationships are to function. Remember we talked yesterday, we mentioned there's, there's basically two categories of relationships. There's our relationship with God, that vertical relationship, and then there's our relationships with each other. The, the horizontal relationships. If we're going to categorize relationships, that's kind of a dividing line. And, and each one of them has their own, some of their own unique functions, some of their own unique needs and parameters. And so um, we're going to be looking at a, a portion of text today that, that deals with both of those. We're not going to get through the, the whole text. So today we're just going to be dealing with kind of our vertical relationship for today. We, we mentioned this passage last week, but it, it, it was just too important. I didn't intend, uh, when I started this series, to spend so much time on this passage, but as, as the Lord just really kind of impressed that this, this is where we need to sit for a week or two. Um, and so we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the, the Ten Commandments as, as they are commonly known. If we would read and meditate on, on these for the brilliant, sacred, transformative instructions that they are, um, and allow the Holy Spirit to change us through these instructions, our relationships, our relationships with God, our relationships with each other would be amazing. These, the, the, these, this short little passage... God packs 95% of all of the instruction, all of the advice you need to relate well to God and for us to relate well to each other. And so we were going to take a, take a bit of time and kind of do a deep, deeper dive into some of these. But before we, we get into the text, I, I want to I take a moment and just kind of... Um, relive or, or, or walk through the story of how we ended up at the Ten Commandments. Um, context is king, as they say in, in scholarly work. If we don't understand the context of something, it's really hard to understand the thing itself, right? 
You've experienced that, I'm sure, in, in your own lives. And so I just want to real quickly kind of go through how we, how we end up at that moment where God gives us these, these 10 instructions for life. Um, and it starts, well, it start, we could start you know, all the way back, but we don't have time for all that. So we're going to start with um, God, when God first introduces him to the, himself to the people of Israel. And he did this through a personal relationship with one guy, and his name's, as you know, is Abraham, right? So he introduces himself to Abraham, and he initiates a relationship with Abraham and tells him that he is going to, Abraham's going to be the father of, of a huge nation, right? That promise. And then uh, Genesis chron, chronolo, chronologicized, that's not a right word. He tells the story. How's that? It tells the story of Abraham's relationship with God. And then it, it keeps going. It talks about Isaac's relationship with God. And then Isaac's son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And you may remember the story of Joseph, who is Jacob's son, in the coat of many colors. And he gets, you know, his brother sell him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt, right? And then there's a famine in through a miraculous work of God, Joseph is able to rise up and, and become a leader there. And through Joseph, the entire, all of Egypt and the area is saved because God leads him to provide uh, food during this famine. And because of the famine, the rest of the family kind of comes down to Egypt. And so we have this, this family that God has initiated a relationship with ends up in Egypt. And they're there. And God begins to bless this family, and so their descendants have descendants have descendants. And before you know it, this once was one family is now an entire people group. And there are literally millions of them. And it says that, that the, the, the Egyptians began, the Pharaoh got worried because they were so big, so what he decided to do was he enslaves them. So this, this people group, this 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 group that God had started this relationship becomes a, a nation, a, a people of, of, of in bondage, of slavery. And for hundreds of years, that was who the Israelites were. They were a subculture in Egypt. They were slaves. Then God rescues the Israelites. He, he shows up through Moses and he... he shows Pharaoh that it would be in his best interest and the interest of everybody around if they would do what the Lord says and let his people go. And you, I'm sure, are familiar with the stories, with the plagues, and Moses leads the people out. And it's an amazing thing, and, and um, the Israelites are, are kind of reintroduced to this, this God that had established a relationship generations ago. But at this point, um, although they still had some level of understanding and belief in their connection to Yahweh. They still, they still knew about him. They were still praying to him that God would deliver them from these Egyptians this whole time. You had generations, hundreds of years of subjugation, hundreds of years of being influenced and controlled and manipulated and abused by, by a very pagan, a very different, a very other culture. A culture that, that I can't help but see some similarities in, in the world we live in today. The Egyptians were, were very polytheistic. 
They were, they were, they had many, many gods, and they expected everybody, and it was okay to worship whoever you wanted that, that, that fit with your life. That sounds familiar to me. It's a culture that was impressed and obsessed with its own accomplishments and its own technology. They thought they were the stuff. That sounds familiar to me as well. I mean, right down to, they used to wear tunics, right? The guys used to wear these long, these long tunics. Have you seen some of the new t-shirts designs that have come out lately? We've copied, we're copying their fashion even. This is, this is so you have the, this group um, that is coming out of this kind of culture. But check this out, but remember, that. They were, never a, they were never a nation before they were conquered. It was just literally one family. And so you have this group of millions of people coming out of this bondage, but they have no social structure, no governmental system, no, claim, no land claimed for their own. They have no army. They have no formalized religion. Imagine if, if you can, um, say you woke up tomorrow and your neighborhood, your block, you walk out your door, and your block is all of a sudden somehow magically transported into the Sahara Desert. And you walk out your front door, and it's just you and your block neighbors. It's the only people around. I don't know how well you know your neighbors, but I am not super-duper-duper tight with mine. Can you imagine what it would be like? And, and now you have this group, this small group of people that don't know, don't know each other, there, and there's, you have no infrastructure, and you guys have to create a life together from scratch. This is where Israel finds itself. Out in no man's land, no leadership except one guy and this, this God that they have just met, and really all they know about him is, yeah, he, 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 he was able to... Um, you know, deliver them from Egypt. But so far, what they've mostly seen from him is he's really good at killing people that don't do what he says. Like, this is, this is what they know about him at this point. So God now has to begin to forge a relationship with this people and figure out a way to how to help this people forge a, a, a relationships with each other because none of that is in, has been established. These are a, a broken and confused people. And he has to figure out how to help them learn how to love each other and not interact with each other based on the fact that they're slaves. He has to teach them how to live like free men because they don't know that life. He has to teach them what it means to, to worship him, to serve a God, a single God, that is unlike anything that they have ever experienced. So what does he do? Well, he calls the world's first summit, right? We, we, oh, that's all the rage now, right? We, everybody has a summit. Every problem in the world, the answer is a summit. We're going to, you know, the G12 summit and the G6 summit and the Eco summit and the this summit and that summit. They all copied it. God called the first one. He literally calls them to a mountain. And he gathers the people together together. And he gives them the keys to having meaningful, right relationships with himself and with each other. And he does it in less than 20 verses. 
Can you imagine if like our modern day Congress was in charge of, of writing a document to govern our relationship with each other and, and God? I think the tax, I heard the other day that the, our, the tax code is like 9 million words or something. And that's just how to pay the government. <laughs> God does it in, in 20 verses, and we call these the Ten Commandments. And that, I guess that's an, ap, ap, an appropriate name, but I, as you'll see today, I, they are so much more. We have so oversimplified this text. Um, you'll see it's, it's much more than commandments. It's much more than just a list of rules. It's a whole lot more than just the Sunday school things that you should learn. He gave them, he gives us this amazing passage of scripture um, for a purpose, for an important purpose. In, in fact, actually, he get, the, this passage has four purposes. There's probably more, but there's four I want to touch on before we, we get into them. The Ten Commandments have a lot of effect on us if we will live by them, if we'll embrace them. The first one is relational guidance. They, as we mentioned, they they will guide us how to relate to each other in a proper way, in a way that will encourage meaningful connection. The Ten Commandments um, also are invaluable in creating communal unity. So you, can't have, you can't have relationships in a community without, without something bringing everyone together. We have to have a level playing field. We have to know, even if I don't know you personally, we have to know that we, we're kind of operating on the same, same plane of existence. The Ten Commandments provide, provided that for, for Israel. The Ten Commandments also help us know God's character. See, in, in revealing his guidance, in revealing these boundaries, in revealing this, this, okay, I want you to do this and I don't want you to do that, it reveals to us what God is like. Because just like you and me, we set up rules based on who we are. Right? The, the rules at my house reflect who me and Shannon are. They don't reflect who you are. And you probably have different rules at your house. So they reflect, they help us know God's character. And the fourth thing, yes, this is the Old Testament, but even then God was laying the groundwork for something amazing because in the Ten Commandments we see them pointing to Jesus. We see them helping us Maybe not in name because he wasn't physically here yet, but it, it creates this billboard that points us to the fact that we need somebody to help us. That points us to the fact that we cannot fulfill the guidelines, the standard that God has set for us on our own. It shows us our sin and our need for forgiveness from that sin. It drives us to a decision about God. Paul says it in, in Romans 7, verse 7. He says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I never would have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. 
It's the Ten Commandments that generates in our hearts the need, the felt need to have something done with the problem of our sin. Now the law doesn't in itself, we were already broken. We were already sinful. The law didn't make us sinful. The law helped us understand that we were sinful. And so the Ten Commandments is the, is the first window that God gives in his initial message saying, you and yourself are not enough to relate to me, but that's okay. So I say all that to say, if we want to pursue uh, restoration in our relationships, the Ten Commandments is a pretty good place to start. It, it's, it's the place where God started, so it makes sense that we should start there too. And don't worry, we're not going to do all of them today because we will all be very, very hungry before we leave if I tried to do that. <laughs> um, but today we're just going to focus on the first couple, which is um, the part of, of the, the Ten Commandments, the, the initial part, is about our, our vertical relationships, our relationships with God. As we go through these... And I, we do a little something a little different than just give them to you. At the end of each, each one of these commandments, I want to give, I'll, I'll ask us some questions. And I want to encourage you to, uh, and then I'll give you a chance to kind of like think about them, ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you individually. Because when we're talking about our relationship with God, when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, my goal here is not to try and solve all of your problems um, in three steps, or, or give you some simple answers to what's right and what's wrong. I don't have all of those. And that's not really the purpose of, of the primary purpose of, of Scripture and, and really of us coming together and sitting under the Word of God. What I can do is hold up the Word of God in our presence as we've invited the Holy Spirit into this moment. And we can sit under his word and we can allow him to speak to your heart as it pertains to this word. So I, as we go through these, I'm going to give us a moment, give you a chance to really connect with God on a personal level and ask him to show you how this applies to your life. Because scripture applies, there, there is only one truth, but it applies to us all differently. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go. So before we, we get into the first, the, the first verse, I just, uh, just if you would just join me in inviting God into this moment. Father, we, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that you are already here among us, God, and we just ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to our hearts. Um, God, would you give each of us clear direction this morning, a clear invitation, a clear instruction as to how we can, we can know you, love you, chase you, connect with you, be more faithful to you, understand you, feel your love in a greater depth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we're going to be, our text is Ten Commandments, obviously, which we find in Exodus chapter 20. Um, I'm just going to read the, 
we'll just read a couple verses and then talk about them. Just kind of work our way through this. So Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. Command one. This is the first instruction. This is the first command for a reason. It is the most important. You shall have no other gods but me. You could make the argument that all the other commandments exist to support this one command. This one instruction. In some way or another, all of them relate back to this one. In, in a very real way, violation of any of the other commandments is a violation of this one. And so it, it's, it's super important that we spend a, a moment on, on this, this one. It is, an, it is a question that we should always be asking ourselves, evaluating. Paul talks about how we should, we should examine ourselves to know, that, to know if we are still in the faith this is of crucial importance. And I love the, the, I love the first couple of verses. Um, it's, a significant, it's significant that we, we bring those into this instruction. The, the first two verses where he says, um, he gave them the instructions. And his, what's his, his first instruction, really, his first sentence isn't really an instruction. It's a statement, right? It's a declaration. I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. I love that. I love that, that he chose to start off by giving us the, the, the foundational situation we are all in. This is not a, if you want me to be, right? He didn't say, if, if you'd like me to, I can, I can do these things for you. If, if, if you're faithful, if you do this, if you, no. It's just a claim, I am the Lord, your God. And I think that's such a, an important foundation. You know, so many of us, there are those of us that struggle at times with this idea of, of belonging to God. You know, you, you love Jesus, you're saved, but you're always questioning that. Am I doing enough? Am I connected enough? Do I know enough? Have I, have I really repented? Am I really sorry enough? All this stuff. But the reality is, your behavior does not, is not the precursor to you belonging. You belonged long before you believed, which happened long before you behaved. And God starts this relationship with this exact idea that he is your God. Now, you can choose to follow him and have, a, and have a holy, consecrated, meaningful relationship with him, or you cannot and suffer the consequences of that, but either way, he is your God, right? My son is my son. It does, regardless of what he does and what our relationship status is and, and, and what he chooses to do, he will never not be my son, and so we start with that parameter. And to me, that's a, that's a comforting one. That I don't, I don't have the ability to exempt God from being my God. He's made the declaration that he is my God. So he starts, he starts there, and then he goes in, into it. And it seems pretty straightforward here, right? He should have no other gods but me. 
But this was a significant instruction for the Israelites. Um, Remember, they're coming out of a polytheistic culture where there was a million gods. And for generations, they were worshiping all of these gods along with the Egyptians. They were still worshiping Yahweh, but they had gathered these other gods along the way. Other sources of power, other, other names that they put their hope and their trust in. Other gods that told them how to live. Things that they knew were not Yahweh. And when we look at this, this first commandment, that's, that's, that's kind of the, um, that's an important distinction because we're going to talk about the second command in a minute. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's the key difference between these two. When we're talking about God saying, you shall not have any other gods before me, it's talking about the distinction of, of there being something in your life that other, you know it's other than God that you are looking to as a source of power, a source of hope, a source of trust, or a source of, a source of guidance that has come into competition with God. God is saying that, that they, were so, they were to be solely dependent on him for, for his provision, for his guidance, for, his, for our focus of our worship. This is not an issue of priority. One of, some of the translations sometimes uh, would say, like, um, you shall have no other gods before me. And that can kind of lead you on this, like, this, this thought or this message of, of priority, right? That, like, God needs to be number one. But that's not really what the picture he's painting is. What, it's probably more accurately translated, there shall be no other gods in my presence. He's not saying I want to be number one. He's saying I don't want any competition. It's me, period. Now, we don't, we don't have the same other gods that we're dealing with, at least not with the same names, right? I doubt there's a whole lot of you that are going to like have to go out here and rip the I Heart Raw bumper sticker off the back of your car. I don't think, you know, Osiris has a big mantle piece at your house. That's probably not what you're dealing with. But our culture still has plenty of alternatives, other gods that, that it's so easy to, to, to find ourselves trying to worship alongside our God. You know, if you, track, if you track Israel throughout the rest of kind of their history with God moving forward, this was their number one problem. It wasn't that they ever hated God. It was that they, they had this tendency to constantly be going back and trying to supplement him with these other gods. Like I said, ours aren't raw or, or Cyrus or whoever, but we have our own. We have, we have science that we will, we, 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 it's easy to, you know, there's the, the, the virus is going around and thank God for, for technology and, and the medical science that's able to, to help us deal with this problem. But listen, as a Christian, that, that should not be where your trust is. That should not be where your faith is. Right? God, God is your God, and God will provide for you. God will protect you. Whether there was a vaccine that was developed or not, God is still in control. Amen. Government. <laughs> uh, none of us... <laughs> 
get myself in trouble. Um, government. Listen, we all have, have our, our opinions about government. We all have our, our, what, our, our list of what's right and what's wrong. And everybody's list about what's wrong is much longer than what's right. Um, and, you say, and it's easy for us to kind of say, well, I, I can't stand what they're doing. So I, I don't put any trust in them. Well, just because you don't think that they're doing the good job doesn't mean you're not hoping that they're the solution to the problem. If your focus, if your hope for America is based on, oh, if we could just get this law passed, if we could just get this guy in office, if we could just get this party to shut up, you have, you have a God issue. I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying government's not important. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't be aware of what's going on and, and, and have a voice. But I'm saying that all should always just be an extension of your kingdom citizenship. I'm saying it, it, whether it rises or falls shouldn't affect your relationship with God. I'll get a third one in here before I move on. The American unalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. These are good things. But we have somehow, in many of our lives, these three things have moved into the, to the, the realm of a God for us. That this is, what, this is what life is about. I am about, I need to pursue life. I need to pursue liberty. I need to pursue happiness. Listen, there's nothing wrong with, with pursuing those things, but those are not your God. All of those things, God says, you come to me and I provide them. So if you're looking for those things and your primary source, your primary direction, your primary guidance to get those things is anything outside of the word of God and his presence, you got a problem. And your biggest problem is you're never going to find them because those things are secret. Those things are only really, truly found in God. That's why he demands that we come to him for them, because he's the only true source of them. So we have these, these other gods that we must take an evaluation of our life and say, God, is there any of these that I am, I am spending too much of my attention? I have allowed to creep in and become something more important I'm dividing my affection, I'm dividing my attention, I'm dividing where I go to make decisions about my life based on these other things. Are there things in your life that you're depending on, that you're pursuing, that are in competition with Jesus? Here's a, a couple of a couple of two, two little symptoms I'll give you just to kind of reflect in your own heart and your own mind. What, is there anything in your life that is causing, when you think about that issue or that there's a government science, just the things in your life, even relationships, are there relationships that do one of these two things? Is there something in your life that causes you conflict in your relationship with God? And when you look at, when you look at your prayer life, you look at, at, at your, your, your connection with God and you're your, your pursuing him, is there something, someone, some decision, some area in which you regularly find it 
causing conflict, internal turmoil, or, or kind of logical, you know, it's coming up and you're trying to choose between these two things? Or is there something in your life that when, when that issue comes up, when you're with that person, when you're looking at that thing, when you're watching that show, when you're whatever, when you're engaged in this thing, that the, it produces a desire to draw away from God or get angry with him? These are symptoms that something has risen to the level of a competing God in your life. Because when God is truly God and everything else is in its proper place, there is no competition. There, there becomes a moment where you identify that, oh, this is in conflict with that, and you just make the choice, right? You just, oh, I can't get away. I don't want that anymore, right? And we stay pursuant to this thing. Those may be areas that you need to admit that, you, that have become a God, and they need to be put in their, in their place. Is there an area like that for you? I'm just going to give you a second to, to evaluate. You know, sometimes in, in our attempt to get through enough material, we pass on these moments. But I don't want to do that this morning. So I'm just going to give, whether you're at home, whether you're here, I'm just going to give us a second to, to speak with the Lord on, on this issue and let, and let him speak to you. So, Father, we just pause in this moment and we open our, our minds and our hearts. God, and would you show us there's, like David said, you know, search me, O oh God. If, if there's anything in my life that has been competing, that has risen to an improper level, that, that, that has become um, a competition for you would, you, would you show that? Would you expose that to me now? Father, we just, um, for those of us that, that maybe something sparked in your heart or your mind, um, the beautiful thing is we can, in this moment, deal with those things. We can, you can just, right now, just take a moment and, and repent. Just a, a admit, confess to the Lord what that thing is. Ask for his guidance. Ask for his forgiveness. And ask for ask the Holy Spirit to show you what steps you need to do to put that thing back in its place, to remove that thing as, as his competition. You just do that right now. Amen. Amen. So that's one. Um, 
We're, we're just going to keep moving on. I, I love how, the, I, I just love that about the Lord. It's like literally every moment of every day you have an opportunity to like change your life. So cool. Exodus chapter 20, moving on, verse 4, he moves on to the second, to kind of his second commandment, second guidance. He says, verse 4, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heavens or on earth or in the sea. Now, this sounds very familiar to the first command. In fact, in in church circles, I, I think we get these two confused a little bit. We talk a lot about having idols. You know, this thing became an idol in my life. And if you notice, um, like if you think of that phrase and think of what we just talked about, those things line up really well. Um, because that's typically what we're talking about is, is these other things that have risen to a God-like level. But, but really, um, this verse is talking about something a little different. This command has a, has a different focus to it. See, idols served a specific purpose in, in Egyptian culture in, in, the, in that area at that time. They were tools made to connect, cajole, appease, manipulate, and embody the God. They were used as a stand-in for the God that you wanted to worship. So worship the idol was to worship the God. It was a, it was a proxy um, and in this command, God is saying that you are only to worship God in appropriate ways. We see in very short order kind of a, a real-time version of these events, right? Uh, if, if you remember your, your Bible history, so Moses is up the hill and he's getting the Ten Commandments and he comes down and what, what's at the bottom of the hill? Do you guys remember there? They, they thought he died, and so they, they've created a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. Like, he literally just, like, I just. It's very interesting, though, if you, if you, if you read, the, if you read the, the, their response, though, they were not intending to worship a different god. They were trying to, they created the calf to worship Jehovah, Yahweh, was what they said their intent was. See, this this command is not about worshiping another God. It's about trying to worship our God, your God, the real God, in an inappropriate way. In a way that would be manipulative. In a way that would be outside the scope of what God has showed us how to approach him, how to relate to him, how to worship him. This is also saying, and, and this is one of, the, one of the main reasons why he made this such a big deal was he, he was trying to communicate something about the nature of our relationship with him. And that is, there are no stand-ins. This is a distinctive to the, the, the Christianity than to most other religions. There is no stand-in. There is no mediation. What an honor it is to, to have a God that would, would deal with us directly. How we see, even in the Old Testament, God is showing how different he was by, by setting up a system of direct worship. What does this mean for us today? It's, it's, the warning for us is that we should examine our lives to see if there's anything that we have an unhealthy connection to that should be a connection to God. 
especially in our, our pursuit and relationship with Jesus. And this is, this is where it gets tricky. A lot, of, a lot of these things are not in themselves bad things. They're good things. But the sin happens when we begin to depend on the thing to connect to God than God. You tracking? This can be a, a job. This can be a, a, a specific uh, ritual, a worship style. Uh, a relationship, a person. There are, there are some of us, there are some people here that if, 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 their, if their spouse got hit by a bus tomorrow, their worship, their spiritual life would effectively disappear. Because their their Soul connection with God is everything is routed through this other person. This can happen with a, this happens in marriage. This can happen in, in, in churches. I, I'm, I can tell you firsthand, I've had this experience. When I went off to college, I discovered, looking back, of course, because I was too dumb in the moment to realize it, my whole spiritual life was routed through my connection to my church. And so when I moved away, the, the connection was broken, and it took like two seconds before like I had no meaningful connection. My beliefs hadn't changed, but my connection was gone because I had, I had only had this one thing, and there was this like pit stop between me and God that I had been using to, to prop up my spiritual life. This is what God is warning against. That there is two, kind of two, two sides to this. One is that you need to have, make sure there is nothing in your life that your spiritual life is solely dependent on that thing other than God himself. And the other thing is um, there is nothing that you can do to manipulate God to do what you want him to. Because that's the other, that was the other thing about, about idols. They were used in rituals to, to cajole, to get God to do something that you wanted him to do, to, to force his hand, if you will. Listen, you can't make God do nothing. He owes you nothing. You say, you know, and sometimes we, we, we look at these, the things in Scripture and we, we rely on them as promises. You know, we look at them, we say, well, God said right here, he'd do this if I do this. And those are true because God wants to do them, not because he owes them to you. He is God, big G, can do, will do exactly what he wants to do. And it's so important that we always remember that because as soon as we forget it, we start losing the whole point of half, most of the stuff that God does, he does because he wants a loving relationship with us. And as soon as we turn it into this business transaction, it becomes something ugly, right? What's the difference between a marriage And a, a prostitute relationship. Love. It's love, right? It's not, not a trick question. <laughs> so when we, when we take that part 
of the transaction out. And we just try and make it, I did this, tit for tat, I did this, you do this. We literally prostitute our, our relationship with God. We turn it into something that it was never meant to be. And God can't, won't, refuses to settle for that shallow a relationship with us. Are there things in your life that if that thing went away, your connection to God would be cut off? If tomorrow this church shut down and we couldn't do online, when would the next time be and would you even know how to have a moment in God's presence? If you're if your spouse didn't pray with you or talk to you about Jesus or um, you know, bring up spiritual conversations, would, you, would your home ever have them? This is why God wants us to have a depth of relationship. There shouldn't be a way that you get to God. There should be 50. Because he's provided 50. He's provided relationships in, in plethora, right? He's provided his word, and he's provided, and there's teachers all over the place, and there's your own home and your own. You get, the, you get to have the word of God. You know how rare that is in history? You know how rare that is in, in, in this world right now? That we have access to the, you personally have access to the Bible. And now that we have that Google machine, not only do you have access to the Bible, you have access, access to unlimited resources to help you understand it. We have to make sure that our our relationship with God is one that is deepening in its relationship, but we are never only pursuing him on just one avenue because we will get over-dependent and then that thing will eventually become the thing we're dependent on, not God. So important. But then... The scripture, this passage, takes an interesting turn right here. So God, God's been telling us how to have uh, and asking us some tough questions about our relationship. And now he's going to kind of chime in with his part of this, what this really looks like. And this is a super, um, super important message, but it's not even a commandment, really. It, it's, it's kind of a, a promise. Um, but it shows us the, the importance the, the implications for, for countless people besides ourselves as to how we deal with those first two commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, he says, You must not bow down to them or, wor- or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children, and their entire family is affected. Um, I'll stop right there. This verse, we don't like this in America. We don't, 
<laughs> we don't like the idea of uh, communal accountability. The fact that I, I, like it or not, I am impacted, my life is affected by other people's decisions, right? But it is, it is a fact. What, what you do will have implications, spiritual implications on, on your sphere of influence and those that come after you. And that's, that's important that we embrace and accept that. But, but there's another message in here, a, a much more encouraging one. Um, so he says, I lay the sins of, of, of the parents upon the children and their entire family is affected, even to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So that's, that's not good news. But let, watch this. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations for those who love me and obey my commands. That is a... That is a promise, and that is, an empower, that is a powerful principle that we have got to wrap our heads around. Listen, we talk a lot about, um, and we meaning people, because it's happened in every generation since Jesus ascended into the clouds. Everybody's been convinced that their generation was the last generation, right? And everyone, every generation has said, well, we, we, but it's closer now. It's, it's got to be coming soon. And it, and it may, and, and we talk a lot about that and talk about even in the context of that being motivation for really getting serious and, and advancing the kingdom. And that is, that is good and that is absolutely true. But think about the opposite. What if he doesn't? What if it's, what if it's another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back? That makes your life, the, the impact of your life, super important. Because according to this verse, what you do, your relationship will got, with God will have an impact on the generations to come until he comes back. If he doesn't come back for, for a thousand years, your, your descendants, the the, the the uh, generational impact of your life will be in the tens of thousands of people. This is such a powerful statement. You know, the, the Ten Commandments, we talk, uh, we tend to look at them as like harsh and the Old Testament is like, you know, rules. Uh. Um, but this verse, it, I, I just want to give you a little a little. Uh, object lesson so we just really understand because I think this is important. Okay. Um, I need a volunteer. Don't all jump at once. Ian, come up here. <laughs> all right. Just a quick object lesson. So this, this is four inches. All right, and so we're going to use we're going to use measuring to to help us read out this verse to understand the the perspective of this verse. And it says um, he lays the sin on the parents up to the third and fourth generation. So here is the length of of the generational sins that God lays down. Okay, now he says, but then he says. But I lavish my unfailing love for a thousand generations. So what I want you to do, Ian, if you would take this and head that way with this, we're going to see what a thousand inches look like. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. 
Getting warmer. Okay, stop. No, keep going. Okay, now stop. Yeah, there we go. So he's like out, like he, his hand is on the exit door. Um, this is the distance. His unfailing love, our sins. This is how much power your decision to follow God can have on this earth for generations. Thanks, Ian. You can come back in. This is why it makes a difference. You know, so much of the time we think of our spiritual relationship as our spiritual relationship. But like it or not, it is going to have an impact. It's going to have ripples for a really, really long time. And God promises that he will, un, un, he will lavish his unfailing love for that kind of distance. That, that is something that we, we, should, we should embrace and use as motivation for following him. It shows us God's generosity. We're talking about thousands of people of your future family being affected by your ability, your intent, your intent on making sure that God is God and that you only worship him. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going to close here in just a minute. This is why we need to take the time to evaluate our lives. The stakes are too high for it to be a casual to, for our relationship with God to be a casual pursuit. This is why we need to give up gods that we have trusted in besides Jesus. This is why we need to repent from any idols or, or manipulations that we have attempted to try and strong arm God. Instead of trusting and, and falling into his grace and his love. This is why we need to ask for a fresh vision for the generational impact of our relationship with Jesus. So as we close this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to sing a song that just states it very simply. Nothing else. We need nothing else but Jesus. We need nothing else but his presence. So I, I encourage you, if you want to stand, I'm going to lead us in a, in a word of, of prayer and dedication. Then, And if we could, just take a moment and, you, and sing the song together as a prayer of dedication. As a prayer to say, God, I, I declare in this moment, God, those things that maybe you've brought up this morning that, that I've, been, I've, been, I've been using, I've been depending on too much, or those things that I, I realize, God, I need to establish a relationship with just you. There are things I've been using as a crutch and not directly trying to pursue you. I abandoned those things this morning, God, and I just want you, nothing else. So God, we, we give you this moment. Let our confession, 
Let our, our, our dedication to you be, be ignited by your spirit this morning. God, music is just music and words are just words. Unless, you're, unless your presence, your spirit affects our heart, there is no change. So God, we invite you to, to make us new, make us whole. Forgive us as we, we confess our weaknesses, our moments, our, our, our tendencies, those things in our lives that we have allowed to creep in. God, forgive us for the gods that we, we've erected. Forgive us for the idols that we've put in place. God, let today be the, the beginning of a new day, of a new depth, of a new... Uh, relationship with you that is is cleaner that is clearer that is more impactful more intimate than we've ever known before we pray all these things in your name